Welcome to the second episode of Women in Foreign Policy. This is a monthly podcast where we, your hosts, myself and Ashley, tackle a different topic in the foreign policy world and hear from different women. Uh, Last month, we talked about innovators and trailblazing women in the foreign policy field, and we just want to say thanks. Thank you so much for the warm response and welcome into the podcasting world. Yeah, we heard from a lot of people who were all very kind and said very lovely things about last month's episode, and we're so excited to be doing this again this month. Um, So this month we'll be talking about careers in conflict zones and working with refugees. We've got a lot of fantastic interviews, but before we get started, we did want to make clear that Annika and I are speaking from a place of enormous privilege. Neither of us have ever been refugees or worked in conflict zones. So we are also really looking forward to learning from what these women have to share. Yeah, last month we did a lot of talking, and this month I'm really excited to be doing more listening. There is power and perspective, um, and we're so grateful that these women have taken the time to share theirs with us. So without further ado, let's hear some introductions. My name is Farinisa Campana, and I am a multimedia journalist originally from New York City, Um, I am now based in Athens, Greece, and I've been here more or less since uh, October 2015. Um, And I mostly focus on immigration, gender, and human rights issues. Um, And so being in Greece is a really great place for me because I can cover all of those via the refugee crisis, and also um, to just cover these issues in in other regions close to Greece. Our next guest, Bathul Ahmed, has worked in a number of different positions with the UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and is currently a humanitarian worker. I guess if you want to put a label on it, then I guess you can say that. So you could say aid worker, humanitarian worker, Something like that, because I initially I was a communications officer for UNHCR. That was my official title. She's worked in a number of different positions, both with the media and on the ground. We'll also hear from Salma Karmi Ayub, a barrister who works on Palestinian human rights issues. So right now I'm focusing like almost exclusively on looking at sort of strategic litigation mm-hmm. uh, and other kinds of legal advocacy on the Palestinian, connected to the Palestinian human rights issue, that, which I do mainly through my uh, consultancy I have with a Palestinian human rights NGO that's called al Haq, but I also do some things independently. And, as with last month's episode, we have one great interview that we unfortunately do not have audio for. At the time of our interview, Amanda Vailer was a public information and reporting officer for the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in South Sudan. She now works for the same office, but focuses on emergency preparedness and works in Geneva. So, when we sat down to start planning this episode, we wondered, what makes you want to work with refugees or work in conflict zones? What draws a person to that career? I always knew that I wanted to go into this field, into the humanitarian field, in one way or another. And my family and I were refugees from Sierra Leone. I was born and raised in Sierra Leone. We moved from Sierra Leone in 2000 to the UK and uh, we applied for asylum in the UK. So my family, my background is, you know, I was a refugee too. So I've always had an interest in, you know, in these issues. But when I was at secondary school here in the UK, there was a refugee council, a day centre next to my house. And I, there was a programme in school where they encouraged young people to basically volunteer at this centre, especially like to help in the creche with the kids. And because I speak Arabic, it was useful 
at the time because there were loads of uh, Iraqi refugees that was coming into the country at the time. So I would go and like volunteer there on lunch breaks and after school and stuff to just basically help with translating or whatever needed to be done. So I had an interest from a young age and I knew that I wanted to study stuff along this line so I could get into this field somehow. I guess somewhere in the back of my mind before I started law school, I thought I would love ideally to do work work strategic litigation type work but I didn't really have that very clear in my mind what that even meant I just thought oh I'd be great to do cases that have a political angle it'd be great to do something in the Palestinian cause because that's close to my heart or other kind of issues related to social justice and then I think basically there was no real obvious way to do that so I just went through the steps that one goes through and then by by complete coincidence a job offer came up at this organisation Al-Haq and yeah. it was actually specifically, it's one of the few organisations in Palestine that had something called an accountability project which was basically a strategic litigation pro- programme. The idea of it was they looked at ways to bring litigation mainly in foreign domestic jurisdictions against um, different sorts of actors that are involved in violating Palestinian human rights. Okay. So I basically jumped on that when I saw it, kind of, it was one of those things where I wouldn't have known that's what yeah. I was looking for but when I saw it I thought oh my god amazing so i applied and i was and i got it we live lives of staggering privilege for the most part i am only familiar with refugee camps from news coverage and more or less abstract classroom discussion i don't know much about the realities these women face in their work we wanted to hear from them about what people don't know about refugees what assumptions do they want to correct very rarely is it that you look at the news and you see a positive story about somebody who has fled their country from Mm -hmm. whether it's Iraq, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Syria. And for me, it's really frustrating because I'm like, I have met scientists, I have met lawyers, I have met artists, I have met, you know, some of the most, doesn't mean if you have an occupation like that, it makes you more incredible than somebody who was a farmer. No. But my point is, as in, I've met people from literally all walks of life who happen to be under this label that you call refugees because they were kicked out of their country or forced out of their country by whatever circumstances. And it's not because... And I've not, I have not met a single refugee, honestly, as cliche as it sounds, that has said to me, I wanted to leave my country. Not one person. People like, stay. Honestly, never. I've never heard that. And I've said... I have. I worked with them since 2011. I mean, why? why... Why do we assume that they did? We are no different. We are literally exactly the same. Do you want to leave your family behind, pack your entire life into a plastic bag and get on a boat? For what reason? Risk your life. I mean, if you had any other choice, you would not do that. It's lack of choice. And it's literally complete desperation, you know? Or when you see, like, when when I was in Lesbos, I met families that, you know, some people that lost family members on the way like lost whether some of them drowned or some of them actually like physically were separated from their families and they have no idea where they are. And they just wait in Greece, waiting to hopefully hear some kind of news or sadly wait for the body of their children to wash up so they can bury them and carry on. I mean, please tell me who wants to do that, who wants to put themselves in this situation unless they felt that this was their only chance of surviving or protecting their family in some way. And what really upsets me is that none of the reality of the situation is actually portrayed in the media. None of it. It's all messy and it's all muddied with politics. Mm-hmm. And none of it is the reality. And it's and, and that's why sometimes I'm like, I don't want to read the news anymore because it's not true. A lot of these people have sold everything they own so they can get on that boat. 
to make it to, you know, to somewhere safer for their children. So everything they own. So they have sold that. If they had land, they sold it. If they had a house, they sold it. If they had a car, they literally sold everything because that journey is really, really expensive. It's about 1,200 euros a person to get on that little dingy boat. Exactly. And that's why you see a lot of single men. But you know what? The media, the way they portray the single men, oh, oh. look at all these single men from Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan coming. They're going to be terrorists. They're going to be ISIS. They come in. They come into these European countries. They're going to make a mess. And then you're like, wait a minute. Question yourself. Why is it only the single man on his own leaving Afghanistan to come? It's because the rest of his family couldn't afford to come. So they sold everything to send this one person so he can bear his life. So, and he can help his family because, and then you speak to these men, you have grown men crying, saying, you know, I've left my wife, I've left my kids because we couldn't afford for all of us to come. Or my family saved, you know, paid for everything for me to come because, you know, the Taliban could, you know, they could take me because I would sit with these people day in, day out in their tents and their, these unfinished buildings. And, I'm, you know, I could sit there for hours and it would be like, I'm having a conversation with with my friends or with my family. And I saw no difference. And it was really important to me to try to show the human beings behind these numbers and to show that often we forget that, especially when also when you say refugees, I know you need a term to label this mm -hmm. group of people who are on the move, but these refugees are people, you know, and the refugee is just a label. I think the biggest thing that I have um, come to see is that um, we have this mistaken idea um, that all refugees are victims. And it's been really detrimental to think like this because, because when you treat someone like a victim, they begin to act like a victim. And so you've, you've then removed their, you know, you've taken away their power. Um, you know, something from, you know, so simple as deciding what you're going to eat. Well, when you live in one of these camps or the hotspots, you have to queue every day, three times a day for about two hours to get whatever food they hand out to you. And often it's inedible. So like these people don't even have their, you know, they're, they're not being given the opportunity to decide anything for themselves, what, what to wear even, you know, they get clothes handed out to them as donations. They can't even choose what they want to wear. And we have this idea that they're so desperate that they don't care what they want to wear. But actually, if you ask some women, they really do care. I've had lots of female refugees, you know, ask me if, if I can pick up a mascara for them or a bronzer or something like this. And your first thought is like, why do you care about bronzer when you live in a refugee camp? And I'm guilty of that too. But then the more time you spend with these individuals, you realize that of course they care about these things. Of course they care about normal everyday things because life does continue. And that's also why they continue to have babies. You know, some people are very critical about refugees living in camps having babies. But it's like they've been in these camps for three years and they have no idea when they're getting out. What do you expect them to do? You know, life goes on and you make the best of what you have. And so um, I, I would say that that us thinking that they are all these helpless victims of war and of atrocities is really actually detrimental. Like it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to empathize or sympathize with them. It means that you're going to treat them in a different way 
and then they end up treating themselves as a victim. And so you, 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 you take away their power and then they become disempowered and then the cycle goes around and around. And so what I have seen is the, is the best approach to, to dealing with refugees that are in a location for a long time is to give them back, like to empower them. Um, and whether that's by teaching them the language or a language, English, Greek, whatever it is, wherever, wherever they live, um, teaching them skills, um, you know, making them, giving them back confidence as well, like showing them that they are capable of doing things and, and taking care of themselves and making decisions for themselves. And, and actually there are several programs here in Athens, um, that, that help empower, especially female refugees, um, and it's been really successful. So I think like, that's one of the biggest things. That reflection is so powerful and is a message that we really need to hear more often. This work is so often informed by experience. It's always so hard to know what you're getting into before you arrive. There's so much that we don't understand and often taking jobs, particularly in the field, can be somewhat of, um, of a leap of faith. So we wanted to know, what is one thing you wish you'd known before you started working in this field? And Amanda told us, if you work in the public sector, you always have to ask yourself if what you're doing is useful for the people that you are there to serve. That sounds straightforward, but it can be extremely hard to see if you're making a difference in a complex setting, like a civil war or a fragile country. I find that being aware of what smarter people than me have thought about power, international politics, and development and justice has helped me understand the UN's work better and be clear about my own role in it. My first job was with the UN um, in the Central African Republic, where I was a special assistant to the head of the UN's development and humanitarian work in the country. Most of what I know about working, I learned there especially what it means concretely to be good at your job. I learned to be proactive, to hold myself to high standards, and to have the backs of my teammates, to be open to new ideas, and that it's possible to have a great time in the office. It was a great school. I know from experience how important it can be to have a kind of office environment that's supportive and that's healthy and that lets you get what you need out of it. I am super committed to self-care in all the forms it can take, especially in careers where the line between professional and private life can be blurred like it can be when you're working in the field. How do we take care of ourselves? How do you maintain a balance so that you still have the energy left to do your work? In a, in a bizarre way, yeah. I actually think doing law so dealing with those issues through the prism of being a lawyer actually is a coping mechanism yeah because i mean i think here i'm much more distant from all of it mm -hmm. when i was working in palestine it was actually often upsetting you would go and you would speak to victims people who just ha had people killed or had their homes demolished or whatever yeah and you would be reading as you said these testimonies just full of the most horrendous stuff um, and it's true, often when I am engrossed in that, it is fairly horrible. Mm -hmm. So, But what I find is actually quite helpful is to be looking at everything with the, the forensic eye of a lawyer. It gives you quite a lot of distance. Yeah. Um, and you don't get so engrossed in it, you don't get emotionally attached. Because mm -hmm. you kind of can't, you sort of have to put your professional hat on. Yeah. So maybe in a bizarre sort of way, it's actually the work itself. 
I think, yeah, so actually I think that in that case it's important to have, yes, that amount of resilience. I think it's really important to have good people skills, actually, which is something people don't focus on at all. But it's necessary because you need to be adaptable enough to deal with kind of different sorts of people in different sorts of situations. You know, you need yeah. to be able, for instance, to adapt to the culture you're in. You need to be able to maybe talk to colleagues who are like professional, say a professional person like you, but then also to speak to victims or people in the field who yeah. are uneducated. And I think a good grasp of politics is really important. I think if you're going to work abroad in the human rights environment, it's really important to have to read up about the place you're in and to really understand what it's all about and to be sensitive to that. Um, I'm still figuring this out. Um, I, I can't say that I've found one particular thing that works for me. Um, I have gone to see a therapist regularly um, for many months. I also now do... Um, I realized that the way that I manifest secondhand trauma and stress and the heaviness of the work that I do is um, by becoming uh, like I, I it manifests in my body as physical pain. And so um, over the past several months, I've had to see a chiropractor and an osteopath um, on a weekly basis because I have just been destroying my body physically from the emotional uh, trauma that I'm carrying, which is secondhand trauma. It's not really my own trauma. Um, so I, I like I want to make that distinction um, because on the one hand, um, I used to feel like these are not my stories. This is not my reality. I don't deserve to be upset or in pain by what I've heard from all these people over these years. But I had to go back and reassess my thinking on that because I don't, that's not accurate anymore. Like, of course it's not my reality, but these are horrible stories. And I, I needed to recognize that being not dumped on, but having other people put their awful experiences on me was affecting me to a certain extent. And so once I recognized that I could then, you know, begin to address it. So I think that through therapy, um, through physical therapy as well, I've begun to be able to manage the stress that I carry from from my work um, and not spiral down into, you know, panic attacks when I hear or see something that triggers um, a memory from an interview, for example, that I've done. I have to have some sort of way to take care of myself when that's happening. And I didn't know how at first, but um, over the months and the years, I've begun to see that even something so simple as like deep breathing really, really helps. And it also really helps me to think about all the things in my life that I'm thankful for um, and grateful for. So that kind of puts a more positive spin on the horrible things that I'm listening to and thinking about and recreating for the people to read. Um, but also I think it's really important to have either a strong, like to have a strong group of supporters around you. So wh whether that's your family, whether that's your, your friends or your colleagues, whoever it is, it's really important to be able to have them and to be able to call someone up and say, Hey, 
I'm having trouble right now because of X, Y, or Z, or, Hey, do you have a minute to talk? Just wanted to hash something out with you or even to ask advice. You know, sometimes I call colleagues who have been in this profession for far longer than I have. And I ask them like, how did you deal with this? When someone told you, um, you know, that they witnessed their whole family being killed in front of their eyes and in great detail, because they don't just say my family died. They tell you how exactly how. And so you begin to be able to picture these things and um, they stay with you. So, you know, for a long time, I was having nightmares about other people's um, stories. And so, you know, I had to fix that. I don't want to say that, that people are, journalists are weaker or stronger than others, like certain journalists are weaker or stronger than others. It's just a way in which we take in these stories and, and process them. So I just realized that like, I'm going to experience um, the emotional impact of my work in a very different way than, than my colleagues will. And that's okay. Um, as long as I find a way to deal with it, because if I'm no, if I can't take care of myself, if I am unable to do my job because of the emotional impact on myself, I am of no use to anyone. And so it's like, why am I, why am I doing this if I can't handle this? So it's really about finding a way to deal with everything that you have to take in on the job. And I think that the longer I'm in this profession, the more I'll have a better method. But for right now, I just, it's a combination of having a really solid group of friends that I can rely on any time of day or night, um, uh, a therapist and also doing physical therapy. Amanda said, the most rewarding part is to get to live in so many fascinating places and meet so many interesting people. Every time I feel tired of my current job in Juba, I go down to one of the camps for internally displaced people to write a story about the people living there, and it instantly makes the work feel meaningful. The least rewarding aspect is to be far from my family, and that moving to a new country every two years can create a sense of being rootless. Each woman we interviewed had a different approach, which I think is crucial. Self-care only works if it works for you. No two people are the same, and so no two people replenish their store of energy in the exact same way. You have to experiment a little bit to figure out what works and what works when. We had a lot of candid responses about the challenges you might face emotionally and what it does to your mental health to work in this field. And another one of the challenges that they might deal with is gender. So particularly in conflict zones, we're wondering how it's possible to balance being a woman uh, with gendered expectations of behavior and of job. For the most part, when I am, you know, working with refugees, I am genderless, I am sexless. Um, and so I, I am, again, kind of immune to um, expectations from these different cultures um, about how I should act. I, I have had certain people from like Afghanistan, for example, that, you know, they've asked me, some women have asked me like, um, you know, are, are you scared as a woman to be living here without your family? Or, um, you know, are you sad that you're not married yet and don't have kids? Like, it's actually really funny. I've had a lot more pity from women, uh, female refugees. Like, I feel sometimes that they pity me more than than anything else because I am here living alone, like essentially without my family, my mother, my father, my sister, my brother. I am unmarried. I don't have kids and I'm turning 34 this year. For them, it's 
crazy. Like they actually feel sorry for me. And so like, that's a funny thing that I run into a lot. And like, as I start to talk more and more to these women, um, I tell them like, no, it's actually great. Like I've got all this freedom and they'll kind of come around and be like, oh yeah, that's true. Like, because for them, they go from their father's house. So their father is their master into their husband's house. And so then their husband is their master and there's like no in between and there's not a lot of freedom. And so when they see that I'm here and alive um, still, um, they can then, you know, take a step back and be like oh okay you know it's just really different you're lucky we're lucky everyone's lucky or on the other hand nobody's lucky um but that's something funny that I've run into with uh, female refugees quite often from the Middle East uh, North Africa and Afghanistan as we've heard throughout this episode this work is a lot uh, we've talked about self-care, but I have to imagine that the work is also rewarding, too. We wondered about stories or experiences that were affirming to this work. I am right now currently doing five different stories, and all of them are pretty heavy stories. And so um, I'm kind of doing everything that I can not to get too weighed down by it. But um, I think... I, it's funny, I'm doing this story on um, an Iranian political refugee here who is a survivor of torture. Um, and he spent four years in prison. They kept him in the dark for four years, so his eyes were severely damaged. And they beat and tortured him a lot during his time. So he has back problems, shoulder problems, you know, you, know, you name it. Um, and when I started this story, I was really scared about how it would make me feel. Like, would I be able to handle it? Would I do the story justice? Um, but every time I meet with this, this guy, I leave the interview so uplifted. And so what I realize is that these, this is why I do it. Like it's for these stories of, of resilience, of perseverance, of survival. Um, you know, like you hear and see the worst of humanity in the, in the stories they tell about their torture or their abuse or, you know, the civil war in Syria. So you hear the worst, but then, you know, the person who's sitting in front of you is a physical testament of the strength of human beings. And so um, you also see what it looks like to survive and to to be the best of humanity as well um so this iranian guy um you know he's gotten to the point now it's been four years since he was released from prison um and he's been in greece for two years and going through like a very holistic program of therapy um and he's gotten to the point where you know i saw him just three days ago and he retold a story um of when he was in prison um being tortured, that he laughed so much about now, um, but couldn't have couldn't have laughed about it when it was happening to him. Um, and so I I was witnessing what it means to to be able to heal um, and to, to move on with your life. So I I it in a very selfish way. It 
made me stronger. It made me more hopeful. But I also hope that when I retell his story, that that it has the same effect on those who write uh, read the story as well. Um, and for him, he I've asked him so many times now, are you sure it's okay to use your full name? Are you sure it's okay to show your your face? Um, I, you know, of course, I don't want to put him in any more danger than he already is. Um, and he said, like, no, I'm, I'm sure. I want my story out there. I want people to read my story. I want people to know what's happening. And you are the one that is going to make this happen for me. So, you know, that's what he's getting out of it as well. And so when someone tells me that, then I, that I remember, like, yes, okay, this is, this is also why I'm in it to be able to have this type of an effect on the person whose story I'm telling, but also on the people who will read these stories. So after listening to all of that, if you still feel like this is something you really want to commit your life and your career to, you're probably wondering, how do I start this career path? What organizations can I get involved with? What degree or maybe even multiple degrees should I get? We talked to these women about how they started in this field in the hope of providing you with some answers. My well, it was human geography, so it was geography, but I focused more on human geography. I was interested in uh, like population movements, oh, demographics, okay. and uh, things like that, migration. I did it at uh, Queen Mary University of London. So, um, so yeah, then I I did that, and I was never really sure what I wanted to go into, but I did. I always did loads of internships throughout. Like I've I've always been a very active person. And then yeah, so after my masters, I wasn't sure what to do. I'd applied for an internship with UNHCR, and uh, I got the internship in uh, in Lebanon. And it was an internship in the resettlement unit. And Amanda added, I was extremely lucky to get my first job in the UN. I had just finished my undergraduate degree in international relations and was studying German in Berlin when I heard that the head of the UN in the Central African Republic was looking for a special assistant. I wrote him an email, he offered me an interview, and a few weeks later I was on a plane. It's an unusual way to get into the organization, and I'm very grateful that he was prepared to take a chance on a completely untested graduate with very little experience. Once you are in the UN, you have to organize your own career, which can be difficult. I've been lucky enough to meet colleagues in different jobs who have helped me move on to new posts, but it is one of the difficult parts of this career, especially if you have a partner who is in the same field and you want to move together. And then beyond the specifics of their own career paths, we also wondered what more general advice these women would give. I guess like the only advice I can offer, because I think it's so haphazard, and I, I remember people saying this to me and me being so frustrated and being like, can't be, there must be a path. Yeah. And when people go, there wasn't, isn't a path, and now I really understand what they mean. Like, yeah. I, honest to God, I haven't got a clue what I'm doing day to day, yeah. or what, what the next phase of life is or anything. So I can't pretend it's all so controlled and so directed, but the only thing I would say, the thing I'm glad I did, and I would recommend to anyone, is pick, try if possible to become to develop a skill set in something or other that you can then lend to the, the thing that you're interested in so yeah if possible have a discipline be it law be it um academia or a specific kind of you know research interest in academia yeah. be it um an engineer be it you know i just think it's helpful to say have a general skill set that you can then use mm -hmm. for the to apply to the thing you're interested in okay. rather than thinking I'm really interested in Palestine stuff I just want to somehow do Palestine stuff yeah I just think it's safer and more secure and somehow more rewarding when you've actually got a profession behind you or if even if it's not a profession in terms of say journalist lawyer whatever it's something else you can really bring to it if that makes sense 
because otherwise you're kind of, I think it's too nebulous. Amanda told us, my main piece of advice is to choose your boss carefully to ensure you'll be working for someone you like and respect, and then not to be afraid to work really hard to make your team shine. I'd also advise getting skills that will make you useful to future employers. Learn a couple of languages, become really good at Excel or at building websites, teach yourself how to make beautiful infographics, or become an expert in a specific country or topic. Every team needs people with practical skills, and they're surprisingly hard to find. The toughest lesson I've learned is that no matter how hard you try, your work won't necessarily have a lasting impact because the problems facing the world's poorest and most fragile countries are so enormous. Honestly, I could listen to these women talk about their careers for the rest of the day. I think it's it's utterly fascinating what they do, and it's a kind of career that takes a certain sort of person because what you do is you go to these places that are so different from what home feels like for you and you do your best and you give all that you can possibly give and you have to be this endless well of emotional and mental strength for people to draw on and then sometimes you don't even get to see any results from that and I can't imagine how difficult that has to be to go to work and come home and live at work in a lot of ways and then not get out of it what you were hoping to get out of it. And not just in a sort of like businessy sense like, oh darn, the investment didn't make back as much as we wanted, but like in a really profound, like people are living and dying based on how successful we are kind of way. Yeah, and I think there's also a a tremendous amount of sensitivity with this work that is to be commended, uh, both to both for the folks who are coming in to do the work and for the communities that are supporting them that they're working in, where you're really you're really coming in and doing an enormous amount of emotional labor to empathize, to try to understand, to to know that. Uh, you are not the one coming in with all of the answers, but you're really there to listen and to try to help foster and facilitate solutions and, and greater peace. And there's just a tremendous amount of uh, emotional labor and, to be honest, courage that goes into that on both sides. And something that's come up a lot between you and I as we put together this episode is the idea of sort of like working in refugee zones or in conflict zones and not being a white savior or not being like a first world savior and trying to balance what is sort of if if at least an empathetic impulse if not you know a purely altruistic one and balancing that with the legacy of colonialism and the legacy of imperialism that often creates these refugee crises or these conflict zones that we then try and fix again. And I think that's a really hard balance to strike. And I don't think there's an easy answer to whatever that question is. But I also think that it's something we do need to keep interrogating as we talk about Mm -hmm. refugee zones and talk about development and as we talk about conflict zones and conflict resolution. Yeah, exactly. It's a conversation that needs to continue happening. And and so we're really looking forward to hearing what all of you as listeners have to say. We want this to be a conversation. So please come talk to us on the internet. Um, we'll be back at the end of September with episode three. But in the meantime, we're on Twitter at Women in Foreign Policy. It's at Women in FP. And my personal Twitter is at Annika E-P-A-N-N-I-K-A-E-P. 
Yeah, we absolutely want to hear back from you about what you thought about this episode, what you think about the podcast in general, what you'd like to hear in upcoming episodes. Um, so give us a shout. I'm at Ashley underscore E underscore Pratt, P-R-A-T-T. And if you like the work we're doing, please consider supporting us via PayPal at L-M-G-O-U-L-E-T, spelled L-M-G-O-U-L-E-T, or on Patreon.